You're listening to Destination Country X, a KPMG tax radio podcast series. We cover key U.S. and foreign tax and trade developments that affect cross-border investment. I'm your host, Kim Major, a principal with Washington National Tax and tax industry lead for U.S. international corridors. We're glad you could join us. Enjoy the program. Since the presidential campaign trail, the Biden administration has had a pretty clear tax reform agenda. And while their pro-America trade agenda has also been at the fore, there are times when specific pieces of that agenda and how they fit into the bigger picture are less than entirely clear. Well, that's what we're discussing today. But before we kick off, we're using today's episode to launch what we're calling our futures program. While we like introducing everyone to our favorite partners, it occurred to us that we also have some real rock stars amongst the more junior members of our team. So we thought that from time to time, we'd invite some of them over so you can get to know them as well. All right, so with me today are my co-host, Courtney Wallace, a principal in our Detroit International Tax Group, Chris Young, a principal from our Chicago Trade and Customs Group, George Zaharatos, a principal from our Atlanta Trade and Customs Group, and Sarah Nelms, a Trade and Customs Senior Associate from our Charlotte office. And, you know, we're going to let Sarah do most of the talking on this one, so you won't have to hear us too much. Um, So, Chris and George, welcome back. It's nice to have you back on the podcast and a special welcome to Sarah. And Sarah, thanks so much for joining us today. We're really excited to kick off our new program here as well. So maybe as we get started today, I know there have been a lot of questions coming in from clients about what the current state of affairs is. We've got kind of new executive orders as we're moving into the new year. George, maybe you can help us a little bit on what's the current state of affairs. So the executive order strengthening by American provisions that came out in January of 21. And just to set the stage, it was meant to do an analysis of whether or not the percentages of goods manufactured in the U.S., the percentage of the components and labor should increase. All right. So, Sarah, and I have had past discussions about Made American. I got to admit that Buy America, Buy American, I get a little bit mixed up. <laughs> Which one is Made in America focused on to clear up all confusion? And what yeah. are we talking about? It's a great question. Made in America is an umbrella term that is used to reference a whole host of regulations that cover various agencies that could provide funding to government procurements. So even if we talk about Buy America versus Buy American, Mm -hmm. those are only two. There are a number of regulations under the Made in America umbrella. But to hone in on those two, Buy America is really related to prime government contracts for mass transit systems. So think of the Department of Transportation, Federal Highway Administration. The agencies under the DOT are most likely going to be seeking grants and funding under the Buy America Act. Okay. Buy American is related to federal prime contracts for supplies and constructions. Hmm. So a little bit different, and they have vastly different content requirements. Okay which makes it even more confusing. Yeah. (laughs) So Buy America regulations require that end products are 100% manufactured in the United States, Mm -hmm. and steel and iron components must be mined, melted, and manufactured in the United States. So pretty steep requirement. Right, right. 
And because of that, we see a lot of contractors go after waivers under the Buy America Act, most notably a waiver called rolling stock. This is going to be something that folks will leverage for city bus procurements, rail lines, things that move. And that waiver is a little bit lesser content requirement. The end item must be manufactured in the United States and currently must contain more than 70% U.S. content by cost. Okay. So a little bit easier to comply with, but still pretty steep. I have seen companies be right on that line. We switch over to Buy American Act. This is a two-part test. Much like rolling stock, the goods must be manufactured in the United States, and currently they must contain more than 55% domestic content by cost. Okay, which is not 100, but it's still not. Not insignificant, but the commentary we've been seeing from the administration is Mm -hmm. if we want the government to give preference to procurements that are buying substantially all domestic content, is 55% really substantially all? Yeah, yeah, because in the tax world, it's not. Right. Right. (laughs) And that's where we're seeing a lot of these proposed rules and executive orders come from. The Biden administration issued an executive order in January. Interestingly enough, four days after the content percentage was increased to 55%, saying we want to look at increasing it again. Okay. So this proposed rule that's on the table is looking to increase that content requirement under the Buy American Act to 75%. Wait, so it has increased to 55 and now it potentially would jump another 20%? Is that what you're saying? That's correct. The requirement was actually 50% Mm -hmm. since 1933. So people have been scrambling since January to get the additional 5% and now they're facing another potential 20% jump? Good news is it's going to be a phased approach. So they're looking to do an immediate increase to 60%, which is still significant, (laughs) but it would not jump to 65% until two years after that first increase. (laughs) All right. Well, you know, thank goodness for the phased approach, right? (laughs) Yes. So content is counted how? So we're looking at the cost of your components your costed bill of material for the end product that you're supplying, and then looking at the origin of the components that you're using to manufacture that product and determining whether or not you hit that U.S. content threshold. What is generating this tremendous increase? Because if we're looking at course of history from the 1930s at 50%, January we hit 55, and now we're looking at a phased-in approach that nonetheless is going to kick us up another 20. Professor George, what is motivating that? Sort of the obvious answer, right, which is the increasing sort of nationalism and protectionism of any policy tool to to create jobs in America and sort of the push against globalization, I suppose. But George, maybe you've got a more subtle answer. (laughs) I don't know if we need a more subtle answer, actually, Chris. Administration included this as part of the campaign to bring more production back to the U.S. And part of that is forcing companies to actually make more of their product in the U.S. And a lot of the reasoning that we hear is because it hasn't been updated in so long. But at the same time, 
it's an opportunity to continue to build the manufacturing base in the U.S. And with one of the largest consumers in the world being the U.S. government, why wouldn't you start there? I guess that's true. We're starting to see a little bit more of a squeeze on the tax side, too. With the beat, for example, we had a COGS exception built into the code, but the Biden and now the Ways and Means proposals would take that COGS exception away. I know the clients are really very nervous about what that's going to mean for them from a numbers perspective. So for buying inventory or components from a foreign affiliate, there's going to be a little bit more of a squeeze on the U.S. manufacturers. On the campaign trail, there was also, from the tax perspective, talk about anti-round tripping proposals. So you can't have U.S. companies that are manufacturing overseas and then bringing those goods in to be sold in the United States. From the tax perspective, we didn't really see explicit round tripping provision crystallize in the most recent tax bills. But this seems to be a way to get at the exact same thing. But from the trade perspective, one thing that the administration has put out there is that, in fact, having the government procure goods that are not made in the U.S. is actually like a loophole. One of the things that set this in motion was that Biden's promise was to make Buy American real and close loopholes that allow companies to offshore production and jobs while still qualifying for domestic preference. According to the White House, contracting alone accounts for nearly $600 billion in federal spending. All right, so that does make a huge difference. The U.S. government effectively is a market maker. If you're going to make the market, you might as well move the market in the direction that you want. The other item that's really front and center right now is increased enforcement. And going back to what George said about closing loopholes, we're going to see a very robust change to the waiver process. So I mentioned waivers under the Buy America Act. They Mm -hmm. do also exist under Buy American, but historically there has been a significant lack of visibility into who is applying for waivers, what is getting approved, et cetera. And part of the campaign promise that Biden made was really letting the American public know how this program works and how it's benefiting them. And what they have proposed is developing a public website where all waivers will be published for view and comment. And we've already seen that start to take shape. So really going to see increased oversight into that process, probably a reduced approval of waivers. So that's really interesting because I think the thought that your waivers may actually be out there and in the public, I I think that's going to give a lot of companies some pause, right? We're going to have to think through, does that really make sense from a government affairs perspective, from what we're talking about publicly? It feels a little bit like the ESG discussion, right? Where I need to make sure that what I'm putting out in public all over the place really ties together. Right. I mean, you're going to have to disclose when you have been kind of un-American, when you have not brought jobs home. Maybe you have used labor overseas, you've used resources overseas, but it hasn't been at home and therefore you're going to have to talk about it. I think you're absolutely right. It is about jobs. I think it's also about politics of jobs, isn't it? About being seen to want to protect American interests. What it strikes me as though, those things almost don't matter. 
we've taken such a leap away from this sort of attitude that globalization is best. We're now putting in measures that affect that and change that. It's just such a stark difference between what we were probably used to, I don't know, even even five or six years ago, right? Another executive order that was published in February of 2021 focused on critical supply chains. And what it did was set course for a 100-day review so that the administration could look at some areas where they felt that there was a lack of resiliency in the U.S. supply chains. That executive order focuses on the supply associated with APIs for pharmaceutical products, as you would imagine, as a result of COVID. Semiconductors, which everybody knows that there's a shortage on semiconductors that has hit the automotive industry hard. Some strategic minerals that are used in various applications. And one other, right? What is interesting is how does it translate into something tangible, right? You could say, I want to have a more certain supply chain as the government. But really, are you the one that dictates it? It's mostly the companies that are going to decide where it comes from, if they're going to invest in new factories here. Like you need to put your money where your mouth is if you're going to make it happen. And I think what we're seeing is through the infrastructure bills, there's funding and or provisions being put in that may end up connecting to these executive orders such that companies may decide maybe it is a good time for me to build a factory in the U.S., and start building batteries, I'm sorry, batteries was the last one, for electric vehicles. And as a result, you're going to see a lot of supply chain transformation. We see this a lot in the auto industry in particular. As I sit in Detroit, we see it, I think, when, for example, we've got folks that make seats, and there are semiconductors both in the seat, and then they're in the vehicle that they're selling, you know, that they're trying to put their seats in. I think that it really pushes these folks to work hard on what can we do to help secure that supply chain. It seems like if we could push to then get that in the U.S. and take some of the pressure off, that, that's got to be helpful. But it is a really, really big issue for a lot of clients. So there's a little bit of protectionism in there. We know that disruption that we've had relatively recently has shown us we need to be a little bit more self-reliant. So we're going to put it all in the United States. We're going to create jobs in the United States. And that all hangs together from a trade policy perspective, almost ironically, from the tax policy perspective. The tax ESG push is a little bit in the opposite direction. We're not going to be completely protective of the U.S. FISC. We're not going to be particularly grabby about what is our share. All the jurisdictions in the world should have a better shot at their fair share. It is just interesting to me that when we talk about the tax trends, there's a little bit more of the sense of let's spread it around, whereas the trade trends are a little bit more of let's get our arms around it and bring it home. It sounds like more of a multilateral approach with us being a little maybe less grabby on the tax side because that's a negotiated position through the OECD and kind of BEPS 2.0, but we get back on the trade side without directly taking aim at any other country while we do it. Is that fair to say? <laughs> yeah, although we probably shouldn't say that before we get caught up on the 301 scene. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's true. So what's the latest maybe on the on the 301 side? I would say came on the 301 side of things. There was obviously an expectation that when Trump left office that the Chinese tariffs would sort of melt away. And he did that with Europe, as we know. But it hasn't happened and, and there's no sign of it happening, at least not not openly and publicly, officially. 
happening with China. So the question is then, okay, well, if it's not going away, what about exclusions? There are no new exclusions as far as I know. There was an announcement yesterday by the USTR that indicated that they were going to open up the process to allow for new exclusion applications mm -hmm. and that those would be very targeted for products that were not in terms of the, the strategic supply chain of the U.S. And, and our foreign policy that would not impact it. Things that are hurting the U.S. consumer but are not strategic enough to keep the tariffs on them so that they would provide exclusions. So with that, there really isn't anything to report other than we know that the exclusion process will open back up. And I think it kind of goes to the point you mentioned where, well, are we expecting new tariffs? If they're opening up the exclusions, maybe not. But I, And so I do think it's worth noting that we just heard the process is opening, but maybe we don't necessarily take out that there may be new tariffs because we just don't know. It's important to note that the USTR and, and their staff right now appear to be positioning themselves as even tougher than Trump on China. And in fact, the exclusions that were being provided from what we heard from Catherine Tai yesterday, the exclusions that they plan on opening the process up for would likely be more narrow than what the Trump administration exclusions were based on what she reported. So there is this kind of spigot opening of additional exclusions that were under Trump, but likely to be more narrow. So people are putting a lot of pressure on the administration to at least relieve the pain of certain tariffs on products that are hurting the consumer. And what do we do about the old exclusions that had expired where there's a gap? Is there a gap? It's not that there's a gap per se. It's that they deliberately, in the main, they expired because the, the Trump administration's view was the exclusions were there only to allow you to exit China, right? You had to show, well, what else was available in the U.S. to, well, something not available in the U.S. to source, for example, right? Why couldn't you get it somewhere else than China? Now the view, the view was, well, we gave you long enough to find a different source. So I think the, the ones that remain are only those that are super, super strategic to my to my knowledge, very few and, and focused on fighting COVID, so sort of health-related products, right? The genie's out of the bottle, right? The tariffs are going to be hard to put back in the bottle. So yes, there might be some exclusions. We don't know what that will look like yet, but certainly the tariffs are out there and they're staying. Let's not lose sight of that, right? There might be some new tariffs. There may be not. That might just be a negotiating stance that they're being mentioned, but zero mention of them being taken off the table. It was an announcement, which means, you know, they're going to start publishing details. Our assumption is that each company that wants an exclusion will have to reapply. It won't be the government just saying, okay, well, we'll just exclude all these products. Because at that point, why wouldn't you just get rid of the tariff altogether on certain products? Mm -hmm. So th there'll likely be an application process. And remember the products that we were talking about that were in the Biden executive order on strategic supply chains and how we need to be more self-sufficient, you know, and it right. kind of so connects batteries and API yeah. and stuff. Yeah, I would be very surprised if those have tariffs on them from China and that they they approve an exclusion for the items that we said we need to be more self-sufficient in the U.S., whereas in the past, perhaps they were opened up for an exclusion. How many exclusions had been granted? I have a file I can pull up if you like. 
if I had to estimate, it would be in the single digit thousands. 3,049. Those expired when? Rolling expirations through last year and into yeah. this year, right? Correct. Right. Most of the exclusions expired December of, of 2020. Mm -hmm. Chris, you just made me think if folks haven't filed for their Q420 protests or refunds, now's the time. So they just need to get on that at the point, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Did I hear that right, that there's a lot going on in the forced labor area? So it's a very hot topic with customs. Companies are getting questionnaires, they're getting merchandise seized. And in fact, there are a lot of discussions right now with customs in terms of how to manage this area and what will be the expectations going forward to prove that something was not produced using forced labor. What are the outlines of the forced labor rules? As it sounds, customs enforces the forced labor rules through the Tariff Act. So literally, the admission into the U.S. of those sorts of goods is going to be prohibited. That's why customs can make stoppages, can prevent things from entering into the U.S. under the powers that they're granted. It's an evolving customs enforcement area right now that we're waiting for guidance on, though there are many instances of customs withholding merchandise upon arrival in the United States that come from certain regions and or have high risk of forced labor. Are we talking like child labor? It's everything. It's indentured servitude. It's child labor. It's subhuman work conditions. Okay. Is it just a certification right now? Or like just some like a sworn statement that it wasn't produced by forced labor? It's none of the above, actually. There are rules against it, but it doesn't tell you how to do it. It doesn't say what certifications. There's really nothing other than if you get flagged for a shipment that may have it, the onerous is on the importer to prove that it wasn't made with forced labor. <laughs> so you're saying that a customs official could ask you, was this shipment, the products in the shipment or, or whatnot, made under forced labor? Under rules that don't quite exist, under certain, like without any formal or standardized certifications or ways of proving innocence, and they can seize the goods. Mm -hmm. Holy cow. All right. I feel like this forced labor, we're going to have another conversation about this. But okay. So thank you so far. <laughs> so there's a lot going on in the international trade arena. And not all of it comes with clear objectives or well-articulated guidance. We'll see if the last bit of 2021, which started off with a bang, brings us any clarity. And in the meantime, be good, stay well. We'll speak again soon. You've been listening to Destination Country X. Thanks so much for tuning in. We look forward to speaking to you next time.